0: Welcome to the No Normal. The No Normal is a special presentation coming to you from New Music Edmonton. Thank you for joining us for this month's array of conversations, music, and special features. This series is presented in partnership between New Music Edmonton and CJSR Radio. Watch for additional special projects between NME and CJSR in the future, and enjoy The No Normal on their airwaves. You can find the station on Edmonton radio dials at 88.5 FM and online at cjsr.com. New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwiskygon is the traditional gathering place of the many Indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the Indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. For more information about NME's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. Welcome to Episode 10 of NME's The No Normal. The last one until the next one. I'm your host, Oskar Zibart. Now, can it be that we're really already into the last weeks of summer? Did we lose a month or two somewhere, or was it a full year? If you're feeling as though you too have been riding upon some elastic, alien version of time, rest assured, you're not alone. This is the final episode for this season of The No Normal, and we're happy to end by focusing on two prolific local artists, beginning with Abram Hindle. An Associate Professor of Computing Sciences at the University of Alberta, Abram Hindle is a noise artist as well as the current curator and organizer of the forthcoming Edmonton Noise Fest, and a long-standing member of BEAMS, the Boreal Electroacoustic Music Society. BEAMS is currently in its fourth decade of presenting various forms of electronic music to audiences in Edmonton. Here's NME's Artistic Director Ian Crutchley speaking with Abram Hindle.
1: What can you tell me about the origins of the Boreal Electroacoustic Music Society?
2: It started a long time ago and, well, from now. In 1989, it was formed by Paul Morris and Marcel Dion and others. My impression was they wanted a, a way to be able to get grants to run shows and they needed to be a society to do that as well as I, I think economically stuff was very different at the time. Like synthesizers were very expensive. Access to gear was very expensive and it kind of became necessary in order for them to interact with uh, arts bodies like um, I saw Alberta Council of the Arts and stuff like that they had to be a society to do so together as a group.
1: Who else is involved at the moment kind of in the leadership roles?
2: Okay, well, we got Sean Pinchbeck, he's the president. We got Marcel uh, Dion as vice president. We got uh, Chris uh, Sampsono as the treasurer, but really he, he does an incredible amount of stuff. So beyond treasurer, he does an amazing amount of stuff. And then I'm the secretary and web chair and then we got some members at large who uh, attend AGMs and help out, like Reinhard Berg, Wayne Defer, and uh, Steven Soretta.
1: In your own understanding of things, how would you say the mandate of Beams has changed over the last sort of, well, the time since it was formed in 1989?
2: I don't think it's changed a lot. We keep cycling back to it. And the mandate is to promote electroacoustic music in Alberta. And Mostly the Edmonton region, frankly. So that's what we do. And that hasn't changed a whole lot. I think some of the purposes or goals or utilities of Beams has definitely changed. Um, around Around like 2011, 2012, we started buying gear such that we could put on shows with our own gear without renting gear. And this allowed us to use just about any space very quickly. And so effectively, if anyone wanted to put on a show, we had the gear for the, the show. You know, you just had to put everything up and you just had to have a space. Uh, but nonetheless, by having that, we enabled a lot of shows. We wouldn't necessarily have people come along and borrow things that often, but them knowing that they could put on a show, it, it enabled a lot of things. Whereas before, we would just have uh, concerts that we like to put on and stuff like that. I got introduced to Beams because they took part in Sea of Sound Festival, which might have been 2012 or 2011.
1: Sure, I remember that one.
2: I, I saw them and I was like, oh wow, I want to be involved in that. Right now, it's really about I think giving people who want to do non-genre electroacoustic, non-genre electronic music and electroacoustic music kind of a, a performance venue or avenue that they can follow. It's pretty hard if you're not, you know, doing EDM or a DJ or something like that. If you're doing synth stuff, it's not the most popular thing and it's hard to book a venue. It's hard to get a crowd. It's, you know, hard to present. And so I think what we've really done is we've allowed for a lot of people to come in and get their first performance in. We're hooked up with a lot of festivals or we were before COVID and that enabled us to program people who had never performed before.
1: Could you talk maybe a little bit more broadly about what role Beams plays in the local scene here?
2: Beams gets attached to events like Works Festival and Nuit Blanche and other kinds of somewhat recurring events. I I think the really interesting thing is the, uh, the dichotomy of New Music Edmonton and Beams. I think they do different things, but they do have an intersection. Yeah. And so Beams and New Music Edmonton definitely have worked together in the past, but I'd view Beams as more of a allowing the amateurs in kind of thing. Whereas New Music Edmonton seems to be a lot more um, for established artists and uh, classically trained artists and people who would classically call themselves musicians. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of people who play music for Beams would be very hesitant to call themselves musicians. Right. So I think there's a bit of the amateur thing with Beams that's a bit bit more emphasized.
1: Yeah, okay. Are you finding that a lot of people are coming to Edmonton and participating in Beams, or does it seem to be mostly people that have grown up here or come here for their education or something like that?
2: I don't know. We get lots of new people. Lots of people who show up in Edmonton and then are surprised that Edmonton has a great festival scene and actually has a lot of art and music. Uh Seems to really surprise them. I think (laughs) Edmonton is generally undersold in this. And when people ask me why Edmonton, I always have to mention this because it's not really well known outside of Edmonton.
1: I wonder if you could talk about any strategy or kind of... A general goal that beams might have for any given year in terms of what it likes to present in terms of the number of events and the kinds of events
2: yeah uh beams wants to put on probably at least one show a season so usually at least four shows per year it really depends on who's on the board and who's got the time to put it together uh there are the regular things which kind of keep things going so Uh, Art's birthday in a normal year. We have other festivals though. So like the works festival, typically we've been able to contact works organizers every year successfully and be able to get programmed in a space, uh, which has usually worked out fine. And that's oftentimes when we have a lot of the real uh, new performers show up. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times people want to do kind of themed concerts, like sometimes a new sound comes out of NASA. And that's just the theme for the concert. So a lot of concerts with an idea. And if the artists follow the idea very much, it's kind of up to them. Mm -hmm. But we had some really kind of intricate ones that Chris Sampson was putting on, we had dueling axes, whereby two artists would show up, and one would be right channel, one would be left channel, and then we'd use a stereo oscilloscope to draw the waveform in mm-hmm. 2D. So it would make flowers. And some people went really far to do it computationally such that they could draw textual characters, things like that.
1: Let's talk about Noise Fest a little bit then. Okay. So, August 28th, Beams is presenting the Edmonton Noise Fest 2021. And you are the one that is in charge of it
2: uh this year yeah this year i'm running it um prior years mark maloche otherwise known as damn sure illustrious yeah. noise artist as well as michael Tofer mm-hmm. uh also known as poitier or he's got a couple other different names because of the pandemic we've decided to do a virtual one even if um even with the restrictions being lifted mm-hmm. uh, mostly because we want others in canada and others in around the world to submit videos as well. Great. So it's, it's a pure video uh, show and it's going to be promoting noise music. We're going to interleave Edmonton noise music with, you know, noise music from the US, noise music from afar.
1: The use of noise to, you know, define and actually be the name of a musical practice is, is to some people a little off-putting and they're not quite sure why you would use something like that. But what could you tell us about what noise music actually is?
2: But typically, there's these subgenres of noise that are pretty easy to um, identify. And they'll have a certain sound to them, and they'll be produced in a certain way. Right. So one well-known genre of, uh, or subgenre of noise is harsh noise wall. And a harsh noise wall is supposed to be a dynamic, free, uh, just loud Other kinds of noise would be, I would say there's a whole genre of uh, pedal noise. This is probably the main genre of noise music. This is where people get guitar pedals and other kinds of uh, audio filters, and they stitch them all together and they put them together in ways which may not have been intended by the creators of the devices. Then there's like the laptop noise, and laptop okay. noise is oftentimes the stain because a lot of laptop musicians don't move because it looks like they're checking their email and they're using a laptop. So a lot of Max MSP kind of stuff, um, a lot of bespoke software. This stuff probably has a wider range of sound and is harder to pick out in terms of after it's produced how it was done. And then there's like weirdo beardo performative. Uh, <laughs> Art stuff, <laughs> which could range from power electronics, which is screaming terrible things into a microphone that's probably clipping and oversaturated with a bunch of feedback, to more performance art kind of stuff, which could get a little violent at times, like glass and blood and that kind of stuff.
1: Actually violent?
2: Uh, usually just the performer themselves or anyone mm. else willing to step up. Okay. But usually just a performer because people have boundaries. So you
1: know. Right. I wonder if part of the problem people have with it sometimes is just appreciating that there can be a sound based art that is not about music.
2: I, I think that bothers a lot of people because a lot of noise that does get generated is about exploration and it is about hearing things which normally are not presented that way. Mm. So the sound of a washing machine or a dryer or everyone's favorite air conditioner who released an <laughs> album last year, uh, those kinds of things sometimes are of interest and sometimes are, are used and presented. And it's, it's not always what people want to hear because maybe that's their daily life. Like maybe you work in an industrial facility and that's what you hear.
1: Mm, that's maybe true. not what
2: you want to go to a venue to hear right. as well as um, Some people are very aggressive when they perform and they will intentionally annoy the audience. So they will choose tones and sounds which annoy people.
1: Would you tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in this music yourself?
2: I was interested in making music using computers. Mm-hmm. I never enjoyed uh, instruction at school. It, it didn't work out. But then I started getting a computer, started fooling around the computer, and I saw that there was the demo scene. And the demo scene is about people exploiting the computer to do things artistically with code. And a lot of it was done at the start we made. You're like, okay, cool.
1: When, when around would this be?
2: This would be um, 80s, mid-80s to uh, middle 90s. Okay. So yeah. prior to Windows 95 kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> right, yes.
2: Yeah. And so these demos and these greeters, they had music in the background. And the music that they had usually followed a certain format called the mod format. And the mod format was about having little wave files, which you just pitch shift. Mm
1: -hmm. You
2: play them fast or slow. And that allowed you to get a low note or a high note out of one little wave file. But it was pretty, I would say, pretty normal electronic music that you hear on a computer at the time. Uh, So based on that interest, I started making kind of stuff like that or synth music. And I don't know. I, I really didn't didn't really like it then the video game quake one came out and nine snails did the soundtrack of quake one
0: right
2: but you wouldn't have no one would listen to it for its soundtrack normally because they did an ambient soundtrack it sounded like a factory with big heavy machinery in the background that's maybe rhythmically crushing something it was not your normal nine inch nails release.
1: No, it it
2: was Trent Reznor doing atmospheric music. And I thought, wow, you can do this. I was in high school at the time. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to try to do. And so basically, Scrunt Scrunt was born. And then I started just putting sound together and coding stuff up. And, you know, away I went.
1: What is the origin of the name Scrunt Scrunt?
2: It was supposed to be a noise project, so I wanted the name, "Scrunt Scrunt" or the name of the project to be a noise, so it's onomatopoeia. It's the sound, I would envision, of you scuffing your feet on a sheet of metal twice. Maybe right. there's a bit of sand on the metal. Yep, kind that of sounds right. Stuff.
1: Yeah, okay. When would that have been roughly?
2: It would have been around uh, 99 or 2000.
1: OK, so computers are getting a little bit more speedy. Computers
2: were pretty powerful at the time. You had yeah. Pentium processors. 386s sure. were long and gone. Windows 95 had been out. Um, people had real operating systems, and Linux was now distributable.
1: Is there any way that you imagine at this point that there's more to come by but- or or is 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 it possible we're kind of getting to a threshold of what what's not only possible but on computers but also doable by humans
2: so i think in terms what we're going to see is we're going to see better improved user interfaces to make music more accessible to everyone you won't need the rigorous muscle training of a violinist to get a probably not the same sound, but a pretty similar sound. Mm -hmm. So with modern machine learning, we're already at amazing levels whereby using a couple hours of your own voice, we can make a text-to-speech synthesizer that sounds like you. We can synthesize Frank Sinatra saying wild things that he probably would never say Mm -hmm. or talking about technologies that never existed at the time. (laughs) Right. All this machine learning now and deep neural networks is enabling uh, in, insane mimicry at the very least. And it will also enable very strange methods of composition. So you'll have computers generate hours and hours and hours of garbage, and then you'll have a virtual listener. Uh, I already got a student who's, who's done this for drums, a virtual listener that sifts through this garbage and looks for what you're looking for, and then, you know, presents it to you. And then you say, Oh, no, that's terrible. Can you do better? And you form this kind of feedback loop with the machine where your taste is kind of uh, guiding it to find the things that you you want. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to have a lot more really strange compositional kind of motifs come out of this, especially with um, the incredible power of GPUs nowadays, which are used to mine Bitcoin, do 3D graphics, right. yeah. and do incredible machine learning.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So the machine learning is, is definitely really taking off. And I think it's going to enable uh, a lot of composition from a lot of people who never considered it
1: before. Your outside life in terms of music, your outside life is about uh, researching and teaching computer science. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how that interrelates with your musical practice and um, perhaps at the same time summarizing what the interests are in your musical practice, what kinds of things drive it for the most part.
2: At UVic, I took a course from George Zanatakis and his course was called Music Information Retrieval, which was the combination of machine learning and information retrieval applied to music. So this would be uh, treating music as data. Kind of like how Google searches web pages, mm-hmm. music information retrieval is about oftentimes information retrieval of music. So hum that song and go and retrieve that song, or hold your cell phone up in a concert and it will tell you which song is being played.
1: Oh, okay. That's yes. an example yeah. of the
2: information retrieval part. Yeah. Machine learning part would be the thing that say classifies the music. They say, oh, this is, this is um, baroque or something like that. Uh, So I learned a lot of machine learning in that course, and I hadn't learned machine learning before that. And a lot of what I learned was uh, classification, which is you give a machine examples with labels, like this is a tuba, this is a saxophone, you give it a sound of each one. And then it tries to learn that relationship such that if you give it an unknown sound, it'll try to tell you what sound it thinks it is. Mm -hmm. So we do this with like bird sounds, and it works really well. We use deep learning for that. Yeah. But I didn't know machine learning before that course. So I learned machine learning in the service of music. And then as I did my graduate studies, I started using that machine learning in the service of software engineering. And what was starting to happen was that what I was learning for machine learning for music, I'd apply to software engineering and the new models and the new statistical techniques and new stuff I was learning in software engineering modeling, I'd bring back to music. And they'd kind of inform each other for the most part. So I'd get a lot of signal processing, a lot of computer vision, and a lot of the machine learning all kind of mixing together. And it would inform the music in some ways, and it would come back to the research. So I have a paper on capture breaking. Those are those textual images that they ask you to type in the, the characters for. They're not popular anymore nowadays. They ask you to like click on all the motorbikes.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. So it's computer vision tests. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a paper on breaking the CAPTCHAs using the machine learning techniques. And a mm-hmm. lot of those techniques I, I also was able to apply to music itself in order to say, organize sounds or generate sounds and categorize them and things like that. Oh, so okay. a lot of my practice does relate to the statistical and machine learning techniques that I do employ in research and vice versa. Sometimes I'll learn something like deep learning specifically to do music because I wanted to convert video into sound. So just learn what sounds come out of a video, put the video in, get sounds out. Sounds neat
1: Mm -hmm. and and
2: sounds so great at the time. But nonetheless, (laughs) uh, many of my students use deep learning models to guess the next source code token such that when a programmer is writing source code, they can get a little bit of help and it says, "Oh, maybe the next token you want is four. You want to do a for loop?" And they're like, "Okay." So these things start informing each other backwards and forwards. So a lot of my stuff is about uh, is about machine learning and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And actually, at NorCal Noise Fest, I've done a couple of performances about ideas of AI, whether it be ideas of deep learning, which is a neural network, or ideas about search, just trying to find the parameters of a synthesizer that will, well, maybe blow out the PA. Never got there, mm-hmm. but basically the computer sits there, listens to itself with a microphone, and tries to figure out how to be as loud as it can be.
1: You've obviously been very busy during the pandemic, but it's it's hard to imagine any human that hasn't been impacted in it in some way, but It's always interesting to see if artists have felt some kind of artistic impact from it.
2: I think a big issue is kind of lack of variation and that can lead to you going a little stare crazy. Um, What it has done for me, because most of the work that I was doing musically in the past, I don't know, seven or eight years, was about performance because that was the primary output. I didn't record a lot because it was all about showing up showing some cool tool off or some instrument that I made. What the pandemic kind of really promoted for me was the fact that I felt it gave me more time and availability to work on inscribed works. So I would make video and audio combined. They didn't have to be performed. I could do little snippets and put them together with a video editor. Suddenly the video editor became compositional tool, which
1: Mm.
2: was kind of weird, but got used to that. Um, So I could perform little bits and then stitch them together and do a kind of collage and make these inscribed works. And then you can submit them to festivals and things like that, or just put them on YouTube. Right. And I thought that was really interesting because I kind of downplayed the value of inscribed works. Not everything I do is very portable. Some of the stuff I do requires hours and hours of computation is not real time. Uh, it takes CPU weeks to calculate. Maybe it doesn't sound so hot at the end of it. And you're like, that's a CPU week. But nonetheless, I can't do it live. Mm-hmm. So it did enable me to put some stuff on tape that I wouldn't be able to perform live. Wouldn't have been interesting performed live, but it gave it a, a, an avenue. Do you think that's going to stick with you now? I think I'll definitely be considering it a lot more in the future, as well as um, for future performances that I program, like where I I have to host them and do all that stuff. I'll definitely be more accepting of inscribed works to play in between, Mm -hmm. or you know, just or dedicated.
1: Sure. Great. That's a that's a really fascinating answer to that question. Because I've never known what to call them. I call them pre-recorded or whatever, or you know, mm-hmm.
2: inscribed sounds so permanent. It feels it like dragging, uh, like a nail or a chisel through stone. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you can't do the you can't do the smooth line of a U, so you draw a V instead.
0: been listening to a conversation between noise artist Abram Hindle and Ian Crutchley, as well as excerpts from two of Hindle's works, Caffeine, Listen to What You Consume, and Null Terminated. As mentioned, Abram Hindle is a core member of the Boreal Electroacoustic Music Society and will be curating their 2021 Edmonton Noise Fest. For more details, see the information included with this podcast. This is the No Normal, a New Music Edmonton production. NME is a not-for-profit arts organization and is dependent on a vast array of sponsors, members and volunteers. Funding and support for this season's presentations, including this podcast, has been provided by The Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SOCAN Foundation, Alberta Gaming and Liquor, the City of Edmonton and CJSR Radio. We thank all of them for their generosity and continued commitment to recognizing the vital role that the arts play in our lives. Thanks also to the members, volunteers, and enemy staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton, to the artists whose work is the reason we come together, and of course, thank you for joining us. Matthew Cardinal is an increasingly prominent member of the local and national music scenes, both as a soloist and as a member of the group Nahiwak. He's also participated in earlier episodes of The No Normal as an interviewer. And now we're happy to turn the tables and spotlight Matthew Cardinal here in conversation with another returning voice, Piyush Patel.
3: For people who might not be familiar with your uh, solo music, Matthew, how would you uh, describe the music that you make?
4: Hmm, So that's a good question.
3: I'd say it's
4: sparkly sounding uh, ambient music, I guess. Atmospheric at times. Um, at least, uh, yeah, the recorded works. It's mostly uh, like that. Some like some droning elements. Sometimes it's a bit dissonant, but it's usually very melodic and shiny, nice <laughs> sounding. Mostly beatless, but uh, when I've been playing live in
3: the past bit, I've been using a lot more percussion and newer recordings are having more percussion. And uh, we'll talk about your live music a little bit later in the interview. But I wanted to talk more about your album Asterisms that uh, came out in October of uh, 2020 on a record label called Arts and Crafts. Can you talk about the creation of that album and uh, perhaps your inspiration and maybe some influences that went into uh, creating that album?
4: Asterisms, it was kind of an accumulative thing. I wanted to make an album for a long time. It was kind of just recording music and eventually kind of realized that there were tracks that fit together. So once I had enough that fit, I was like, okay, this is going to be the album. (laughs) And I kind of just had to, at one point, settle. I was like, yeah, this is enough. This is the album. Because for a while, I was thinking I wanted one more, one or two more tracks, but
3: that's the album. (laughs) Can you uh, maybe talk about some of your influences just overall uh, and maybe even while you were making this album? Like what artists were you thinking about?
4: Yeah, so many. Um, I recorded this album over, I don't know, probably over two or three years. But even the first track is probably about six or seven years older than the rest of them. (laughs) A lot of like Steve Reich and like, I don't know, Warp Records, Acts, Boards of Canada fixed Twin, maybe, uh, but also like My Bloody Valentine. A lot of like textural stuff. I, I really like listening to the, that kind of music. Really into a lot of like late 80s shoegaze stuff. I actually got Simon Scott from uh, Slow Dive to master the album.
3: Oh, amazing. If we uh, talk about the album Asterisms, uh, I noticed all the track titles on the album, uh, they are named after a, a specific date. Is there a story behind each date and the title track?
4: Yeah, that's just the days uh, they were recorded. I recorded all of them in a in a day. Basically, most of them were done in just one sitting, and um, that was it. Was kind of unintentional at first. I was just I would record something and I would export it, and I you know didn't really want to think of a name, so I would export it as the uh, as the date it was recorded. I, I kept doing that. I was like uploading them, and after I had a few, I was like, oh, this is like an audio journal. So I kind of just kept up with that theme and that's what the album is to me. It's like an audio journal. So I just, all of the tracks are just named after the days they were recorded. They're kind of like a, an audio record of that time.
3: And I feel like that also kind of makes all the, the songs. Like sometimes I feel when a name is attached to a track, it kind of gives it that meaning and you know, just having dates, it leaves it a more open-ended interpretation. Totally, yeah.
4: It's I think it, it, it is a bit more open and I want people to I guess interpret it as they will. I don't know, yeah. It's like I'm not influencing thoughts by giving it a dramatic title or anything. Totally fine with that and people doing that. But it's just I don't think it's something I wanted to do with this release. I just kind of wanted it to be up for interpretation and that was as much as I, oh, that's just what I wanted to give. You know, that's the day I recorded it. That could mean, you know, those dates could mean any number of things for any any person. So I like
3: that too. So I wanted to uh, talk about uh, live music for uh, for a bit. Just kind of in general, uh, I know I follow you on social media and you've been uh, performing online quite a bit recently. Uh, One of them was the uh, New Music Edmonton's uh, Summer Solstice series. How has the pandemic kind of just uh, changed your creativity, uh, whether it's uh, recording music or performing online? How would you say that it has affected it? It's
4: hard to say, it's been weird. Definitely, I mean, I've never really played online before the pandemic, never really did any online shows. And I've done many of them now. It's a it's a really different experience than playing at a venue in front of people with very different, like, energy. And it doesn't feel as uh, reciprocal sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you can, like, play, but there's it's just, like, a screen. So, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. It's like you can be giving a lot and, like, performing pretty hard. And it's like, you know, I hope that went over well. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes um, you can get the chat, and you can see people saying things, and that's nice. But it's this a, I've performed in many different contexts, and I don't always see that or know if there's any reaction. And uh, I've even done like pre-recorded, so it's like I, re- I record the performance, and then it's like played at a later date. So it's it's a uh, pretty different. So it's it's been it's been weird, but uh, you know, I'll probably continue to do recorded. And like online performances if people keep asking me it's weird i do all my recording at home and it can be kind of strange to like do all my work in the same space i'm doing all my living
3: and relaxing so <laughs> just trying to find the balance but uh, doing my best <laughs> so speaking of uh, live music i feel like uh, live music, as we used to know before the pandemic, it might be uh, starting again soon. And I recently found out that you will be performing at uh, Mutech in uh, Montreal uh, pretty pretty soon in uh, August, I believe. You will be performing a live audio visual set with uh, Stephanie Cues, so that's very exciting. And can you tell us what people? Can expect from that performance, and maybe even how that collaboration with Stephanie came to be.
4: Uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, Stephanie Coos. Um, so, yeah, we're playing uh, New Tech together, which is I'm, I'm excited about. At this point, I, I feel like I can't even remember how we started collaborating. <laughs> I had met her partner a few years ago, Adam. He was playing in a band called Pontex at the time. I think you know on tour, I had stayed with them a few times, and uh, I had known. Stephanie did work with uh, Pontex as well, live projections, and she also did uh, some work with my friend Rayana from uh, Winnipeg. So um, I think I was just, I, I just really liked her stuff. So I was like, "Hey, uh, here's my album. Uh, like, do you want to do stuff for me live sometime?" It worked out. She wanted to do it, and um it was last August when there was no pandemic. <laughs> uh, Stephanie, Adam, and I actually did a tour together. definitely doing visuals, and um, Adam and I both playing. I think it was like six or so shows through the prairies. We went from just Edmonton to Winnipeg. That was really great. So we're just kind of continuing to do it. And Stephanie has done all of my music videos from the album. The live show, yeah, we decided to do the entirety of asterisms, uh, audio visual from UTech. And um, it's going to be, I think, yeah, similar to the music video she's done. It's going to be like that kind of visual style for the whole thing. So I'm excited to sort it out. We're still working on it right now. Mutech is happening
3: at the end of August.
4: I hope by the time people are hearing this, I have it worked out.
3: It sounds amazing. I would love to go to Mutech at some point in the future. Have you been to Mutech uh, before?
4: No, this is going to be my first time. So it's exciting. i wanted to play for a while. So I um, was really excited to be asked. And uh, yeah, I'll be flying out as while. It'll be my first out-of-town show for a long time in a long time, not for a long time. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh, Well, I wish you all the best with that uh, performance. And I feel like when it comes to electronic music, ambient music, uh, I feel like visual component works so much better with that kind of music as opposed to, even like, you know, bands, and that's kind of going back to, you know, we were talking about uh, how the pandemic has changed your creativity. I feel like for me personally, uh, when I watch a show online, I feel like electronic music, even like, you know, ambient experimental music when you have like, you know, some artists will have a visuals in the background, and it it feels more, you get that vibe of the music, which I feel like it's missing when you have like bands playing online because you miss that kind of that energy. We were talking about live music and I wanted to switch topics and uh, talk about your photography. In the introduction, I mentioned you uh, as a photographer. And like I mentioned earlier, I follow you on Instagram and uh, you take a lot of pictures of plants and trees uh, using both digital and analog gear. And also your album, Asterisms, features a plant on the cover. And as someone who doesn't know anything about plants, can you tell us what is on the album cover? Maybe you can expand on your fascination with capturing plants and trees uh, through your photography skills. Uh, So the album cover, it's
4: 95% sure (laughs) it is a a mountain ash tree. That was a... Took the shot, I think it was on uh, January 1st, a few years ago, early in the morning, I suppose. I don't know, it just turned out really well. It's actually a cell phone photo that I really liked. You know, I've since started taking pictures with film and I have like an actual digital camera now that I kind of like. I prefer analog much more. I don't know what it is. I really like taking pictures of like plants, I like how they look. Um, I think they make for good uh, subjects (laughs) and photographs. And I love doing night photography a lot of the time. I like the way that turns out. I I love using flash at night. I think it just, it looks really unnatural and otherworldly in a way I really like.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, I noticed that a lot of your pictures, they have this kind of bluish, like purple Mm -hmm. tint to them. So is that because of like night photography and the way the flash kind of works?
4: Some of it I'm using...
3: um, some gels
4: or the flash the color of the light mm-hmm. and uh some of it i'm using uh i've got a uh, i have got I use this film made by a company called lomography i think they're swedish but it's a uh, it's kind of their attempt at recreating an old infrared uh, kodak film that was really like kind of pink and this one is kind of a bit more purple but it's, it's a lot easier to deal with and you can develop it like at any regular film So I use that. I just I really like how it looks because it does make things look kind of dreamy and unnatural. You know, it it shifts the colors quite a bit, like all the greens turn purples and like the yellows turn pinks. Yeah, it's just I really like this film. It's just more interesting to me a lot of the time. I don't know. I mean, I do love just normal color photography, but this can just make things
3: a bit more uh, out there. So now we're jumping back to uh, music again. Uh, what are you listening to these days? Oh, what
4: am I listening to these days? I've been revisiting the Delgados. One of my favorite bands, uh, like Scottish band, started their own label called Chemical Underground, which is also a great label. The Delgados. Oh, I've been listening to a lot of Square Pusher, That 25th anniversary edition of his first album just came out. Yeah, I've been really loving that. Aphex Twin. I've been listening to Drux a lot uh, in the past week or so been enjoying some tetsuru yamashita this like japanese funk pop artist from like the 80s the uh, the new tennis album i'm still well it's not new anymore i guess it came out last year like last february but i'm still like really enjoying that album i've
3: been listening to it a lot i know i know we share a love for uh blonde redhead yes i've been kind of uh going back to their earlier discography a lot more i kind of discovered them when they were more pop i've been kind of really digging their early discography where they were a lot more noisier
4: yeah those are great records i, I got that box set of their first two a uh, little couple years ago and it's, it's great I, I love those early albums they're so different they've changed so much over the mm-hmm. years but i feel like they still sound like blonde redhead and i don't know i i hope they uh Got something new soon. I think um, it's
3: the, like, yeah, Kazuma Kino has that that voice. Like, you know, it's, she's a, she has a very kind of characteristic voice where you can tell that uh, it's, it's blonde redhead. I wanted to uh, talk to you about your live performance. Uh, I've seen you perform live as, you know, Matthew Cardinal with your uh, modular synthesizer setup on stage. I always notice you have this, uh, I'm going to call it a toy. It's always like next to your setup. You know what I'm referring to? I I Uh, do. uh, And yeah, I've seen you a few times and it's always there. And I wanted to ask you if, first of all, what it is and if there is uh, some sort of uh, significance to it.
4: It's a little owl. I don't know, technicolor, multicolored owl that's actually like a stress ball. I just really like how it looks. (laughs) It's a good gradient. It's -hmm. from like red to pink. It's just, I've always really liked owls growing up. I think it's because of my cookum. My grandmother, she she loved owls and had a lot of like owl things in the house, pictures and like statues and stuff. So just because of that, I really like it. I just saw this thing one day and I was like, oh, I uh, just like how it looks. I have a little friend up there with me when I'm performing. But yeah, I like to have it up there with me
3: as a little something to the stage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is yeah. it uh, safe to assume that you will be taking this to uh, Mutech with you? Oh, uh, yeah, probably. We'll see. Yeah, that's yeah. A good question. I don't know if
4: anybody will be able to see it, but I'll
3: <laughs> probably bring it. Yeah, and I think yeah. it looks great with like uh, like all your different uh, uh, patch cables that you use uh, for yeah. your synthesizer, kind of aesthetically too. It looks it looks great. Yeah, it totally it totally matches all the, <laughs> the
4: multicolored colored cables. It uh, just fits right in.
3: Lastly, I just wanted to ask you uh, what's in store for this year and next year. What do you have uh, coming up? Any other projects that uh, you would like to uh, talk about?
4: Hmm. Well, I've been doing just a lot of commissions for all sorts of things. I've been taking up most of my time. Um, Just soundtracks for various documentaries and other works that some I'm not sure if I can talk about yet. Music for like a nature walk in Toronto short documentary series and some other like installation works. I'm hoping to be working on my next album soon. I'm, you know, I'm kind of doing my best. I kind of am. And uh, when I can get a chance, I'm really excited to get more work done on that. I think it's going to be a little bit different from Asterism. Maybe, well, yeah, it'll, it'll have more percussion. I think it'll be more intentional. Whereas uh, Asterisms was kind of just capturing moments when I was inspired. And um, I would just kind of record when I found something, this next record, it'll be more an idea that is executed, maybe. <laughs> but I think, yeah, uh, it'll have more percussion. And I think I'm probably going to have some vocals on there. I am going think I'll probably do some vocals and I'll probably have some guest vocalists talking to a few people. That, so I'm excited
3: about that. I hope it all works out. <laughs> No, that is very exciting. And I look forward to uh, your new music and hopefully I get to uh, see you perform live soon. I hope so. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, thank you uh, uh, one more time for taking the time to uh, talk with me today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. (laughs)
0: Matthew Cardinal speaking to Piyush Patel with excerpts from two of Matthew Cardinal's works February 21st, 2019, and It's Not Weak to Ask for Help. Thank you to Matthew Cardinal, Abram Hindle, and Piyush Patel for their involvement in our season finale, and that's a wrap, at least for now. Nine months of the no normal, ten episodes, dozens of artists and interviews, and almost as many artistic works featured. Time now for a pause and a recharge, and to begin mapping out what's to come. We will return in the autumn with a new season. A reminder that news about special programming and events can be found at newmusicedmonton.ca along with our streaming podcast archive and other multimedia works featured in the series, and be sure to explore the eclectic programming of our partners at CJSR Radio. The No Normal podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton and is produced and hosted by me, Oscar Tsebarth.